0: Right, it's brilliant to have my friends Liam and Helen Thatcher with us this morning. Uh, Helen was part of the youth group that Grace and I led in a church in southeast London about 20 years ago. So we've known her (laughs) since she was younger than she is now, and we were younger than we are now. And uh, Liam and Helen have been married. How long have you been married? Twelve years. Wow. Wow. And uh, they've been great friends for a long time. Um, Liam's a pastor at a church called Christ Church in London, which is a multi-congregation church in London at the moment. Five congregations, starting another one this September. And Liam is particularly responsible for teaching across those congregations. Does a lot of the teaching across those different locations across London. So it's fantastic to have Liam and Helen with us. Let's give Liam a big welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, It's really great to be here. Yep, you've heard um, now how old my wife is, (laughs) which I don't think she'll thank you for, Matt. Um, But yeah, it's been great to get to know these guys for many years and great to come and see the church that they lead. And uh, it's a real privilege to be here. As Matt said, we've been in London 10 years actually next week. So being here this weekend, I get to experience something I haven't for about a decade because you've got this stuff here that we don't have in London. It's called fresh air. It's like... It's incredible. If you've not tried it, you've got to try it. You put it into your lungs and it doesn't kill you, which is a novel experience for me. Uh, and you also have an amazing beach and we got to go there yesterday and that is glorious. But, but, the book of Revelation says that in heaven there's no sea. So uh, in that sense, heaven is more like London than pool is all <laughs> I'm saying. And uh, you can't argue with that one because it's in the book. So, <laughs> um, but it really is great to be with you. And if you do have a Bible, you may want to turn to Genesis chapter 26 uh, in a Bible or smartphone or whatever Bible replacement you happen to have down here. I'm going to look at Genesis 26, and I want to speak today uh, on the subject of having faith for a fresh new move of God in times that feel dry and barren. See, history is full of times when God has stirred his church to Long for and believe for and have faith for and pray for a fresh new move of the Holy Spirit that results in the transformation of the region, the nation, and indeed the world. And history is full of examples of times when God has done this. For example, the Wesleyan revival, Hebridean revival, the New York Businessmen's revival, the Welsh revival, and many, many more. These are times when the church has given itself to faith and prayer. And as a result, God has brought many thousands and thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ. And around the world right now, it seems that many people are starting to speak about and pray about and believe that maybe God is again stirring his church to have faith that he might do that in our generation. In different parts of the world and different parts of the church, people are talking about this and praying about this. And so I want to talk about today, what does it look like to have faith for a fresh new move of God when, to be honest, we look around and the world feels often pretty dry. And I want to look at a story in Genesis 26. We're not going to get to read the whole passage, but do have it open in your Bibles in front of you so you can follow along and make sure I'm not just making it up as I go. I want to look at three thoughts from this passage. We're going to look at ancient promises, ancient practices, and ancient power. Let's start with the promises and a bit of context. At the beginning of Genesis 26, everything seems bleak. Abraham has just died, and Abraham is the founding father of the people of God, and he had been given a whole load of promises by God that God would give him offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he would take them to a promised land, and they would be blessed in order to be a blessing. And at this point in the story, it doesn't seem like God is keeping those promises. Abraham himself is dead, his offspring are about as numerous as the stars in a London sky, which is like, you're barely even sure they're there at all, and they are certainly not in the promised land. They are wandering as a nomadic people. Now Isaac, Abraham's son, is in charge at this point. When Abraham had been in a similar position, wandering in this desert, God had supernaturally given him wells for the refreshment of the people in the desert. But now Isaac is in this context, and he doesn't even have access to the wells that Abraham had, because the enemies of God's people have been jealous that God was blessing them, and so they got mud and they packed in the wells so they were no longer accessible. It is a dry, difficult, challenging situation in which Isaac is not even able to access the refreshment of past generations. It doesn't seem like a context that is ready for a fresh new move of God. In some ways, I would put it to you, that is not dissimilar from the context in which we live today. If you read a paper or talk to anyone outside of the church, which I hope you do, both of those things, on occasions at least, like you will know that many people are very hostile towards religion right now. It is not uncommon to read reports where people are very hostile about religious institutions and religious leaders, and sometimes they have good reasons for that. There have been, tragically, too many stories of late where religious institutions and leaders have let people down and actually been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So I understand and I grieve over some of the genuine reasons why people are hostile towards religious institutions, but it actually goes deeper than that. I think a lot of people are very hostile towards the very idea of God and religion more generally. You see, for many people, they consider that Christianity is sort of like one of these old clogged up wells. Sure, it might have brought refreshment to earlier generations, but now it's just dry and it's empty and it's packed in and it's of no use to anyone at all. Aren't you glad you invited me to preach today? (laughs) So could the band come back up and we all worship? No, like... I think that is the story that we are being told again and again and again. Religion's days are done. It's just useless. It's worthless. It's a dry, clogged up well. But that is only part of the story. It's not the story at all. In Genesis 26, although everything looked bleak, everything looked difficult, underneath the ground were streams of water waiting to be unclogged. The same is true in our day. Although we are constantly being told that religion's days are done, that is not necessarily the case. Whilst church decline is happening right around our nation, that is not true in every part of our nation and every part of the church. Just before Christmas, the Financial Times ran a piece arguing that London is bucking the trend of declining congregations. I don't share that just to go, hey, we Londoners are better than you, but rather just to say, do not believe the hype. Jesus is not dead, he's alive, and his church is not dead. It is very much alive and has the capacity to be even more alive and more active if God would blow upon us with the Spirit. You see, studies show that whilst church decline may be happening and the numbers of people who affiliate with religions may be on the decline, actually people's hunger for spirituality has not gone away. Of course it hasn't. We are people who are wired to long for purpose and meaning and connection with a divine being outside of ourselves and answers to life's big questions. And it is my contention that people will never find the refreshment they long for in any religion replacement, but only through the wellspring of life, Jesus Christ himself. So right now, the challenge that the church faces is the same challenge that Isaac faced here. Don't be put off by the dry ground, the seemingly inaccessible water rather trust that there is life bubbling under the surface, and it's time to trust that God's promises aren't dead. It's time to unclog the ancient wells. The promises of God do not die out with previous generations. Rather, they get handed on from generation to generation. Twice in this passage, God speaks to Isaac and reminds him of the ancient promises he made to Abraham. He says in verse 24, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Not just I was with him, I'm with you as I was with him. I will bless you and increase this number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. See, God encourages Isaac. The promises didn't die out with your father. Rather, they now get passed on to you and your challenge is to take them and run with them in your generation. See, the promises of God are like the baton in the relay race. When done right, they don't get dropped when you get to the end of your little section of the race. Rather, they get passed on. And the job of every generation is to receive them well from those who ran before, to learn from how they ran, and then to turn and fix our eyes on the goal and run as hard and as fast as we can with the promises of God in our day. It's time to awaken faith that the ancient promises are not done, they are not dropped, they are not dead, they are in our hands to run with. And so the challenge I want to issue to you is the same challenge that God issues to Isaac. Are you ready to run with my promises in your day, in your generation? Are we people who get discouraged by the dryness we see around us, or do we lift our eyes to the heavens and trust that God is still with us? His promises have not expired They're in our hands to run with in our day. I want it to be said of my life, when I get to the end of it, I want it to be said of my church and this church and the church in our nation that we did not just kind of fumble the promises of God, but rather, like David, when we lie down at the end of our days, it will be said of us that we served the purposes of God in our generation. Don't you want that? It's time to awaken faith, that the ancient promises are still very much alive. You know, our nation has a rich spiritual history. There are countless times where God has done incredible things in different parts of our nation that have not been restricted to individual churches, but have spilled out into whole regions and the whole nation and even the nations, where God has done incredible things in the past. And I think it can be really helpful to look to those things of the past as a blueprint for what he might do in the future. It's really easy just to assume that God did stuff in the past, but he's kind of just stopped or, or moved on to something else. That's not the case. And when we look to the stories of what God has done in the past, it gives us faith that he is just as capable of doing things in our day, in our generation. We see this, this importance of remembering the past here in this passage. See, Isaac goes to the ancient wells, the wells that have been there since his father's time. If you look through the Old Testament, there are many times when God's people experience something of God's blessing, maybe victory in battle, and what do they do? They don't just go, great, let's move on, let's remember it up here. They create something physical. They put up an altar, or they erect a giant stone, or they build a well. Why? Because it's a concrete reminder to future generations of the faithfulness of God. And the idea is this. When future generations who haven't experienced God's faithfulness in those ways are wandering in the same context and are tempted as their forefathers were to be put off by the dryness and the difficulty, they will stumble across one of these things and they will say, oh yes, this is a sign that God has been faithful to previous generations and it raises faith that he will do the same for us. We need to know the stories of what God has done in his people in the past, and we need to allow those stories to awaken faith in us that his promises are still alive and active and for us today. The philosopher George Santayana coined this famous phrase, he says, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. I think he's right, but I think the flip side is also true. We don't just look to the past so that we won't repeat the mistakes. I think we should look to the past so we will repeat the successes or more particularly so that we will trust that God will repeat his successes. When we remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God in the past, it gives us faith that whatever opposition we are experiencing now, God has always shown himself to be capable of getting his church out of a tricky time. He's not going to stop that now. To be clear, God doesn't promise to just make life easy for us. There will always be opposition. There's opposition in this passage. If you read it through, particularly verses 19 to 22, Isaac goes to reopen these ancient wells, and it's not easy. Like, firstly, it's hard work, but secondly, he faces opposition every time. So he goes and he digs up the first one, and people come and quarrel with him over it, and they dispute it, and they say, you have no right to this well. And so he calls it essek, meaning dispute. Dispute. Then he goes to the second one, and he digs it up, and people come and quarrel again, so he calls it sitna, meaning opposition. Then he goes to the third one, and he digs it up, and this time no one quarrels, so he calls it Rehoboth, which means room, because he says the Lord has given us room to flourish. Our God is the God who keeps his ancient promises, and he doesn't do that by helping us avoid all opposition. Opposition will come, And God will not actually cause us to come into a place of room by avoiding opposition. He actually does it through opposition. Our God is the God who has a track record of turning Essex and Sitnas into Rehoboths. So where you feel right now like you are being faced with disputes or opposition, will you trust that God has a long history of turning those oppositions into places of room? He keeps his ancient promises. It's time to awaken faith. It's time to trust that he will do for us what he has always done for his people. And even now, right now, it does feel like a very difficult time to be a follower of Jesus. With so many voices around us telling us that it's just foolish to try and follow this ancient dead carpenter in 21st century secular world. Like haven't we moved on from these childish stories? Like you hear those voices all the time. It can feel incredibly difficult to be a Christian right now. But that's not new. Like, The church has always felt that. Before every fresh new move of God, there has always been opposition. There has always been dryness. In 1909, a guy called James Burns wrote a little book called The Laws of Revival, in which he looked at times across history where God has caused his church to awaken faith and to long and to pray for a fresh new move of his spirit. And as a result, God has done what is often known as revival. Maybe for some people that's a loaded or unhelpful term. Basically, it just means he brings people back to life again, and he does that for his church, so it will then have ripple effects right throughout society, and Burns looks at times when God has done that in the past, and he says that these revivals are times when many people who had been unaware of the supernatural become keenly aware of it, throwing all else aside, they desperately search for a way of salvation. And he says, these aren't just constant things. They come like waves, like the ebb and flow of a tide. I mean, you live by a beach. You know that when the tide goes out, you don't look and think, oh, that's never coming back in again. Like, you, you know it comes back in. It goes out, you come back in. And that's actually the way that progress happens in every area of life. Burns argues this. He says you see this with technology and science and every area of progress. It it seems to advance for a period and then it retreats and something else goes forward. But you don't just give up on science when technology is advancing. You say, it's tay we'll come back round. That's how the tide works. Same is true of spirituality. He says that revivals are like the ebb and flow of the tide. And there are times where it feels like Christianity is advancing, where people are really open to and eager to know about God. And there are times where it feels like the church's influence is on the decline. In those moments, the challenge is don't be put off by the dryness of the ground. Trust that the tide is going to come back in again. Because God is the God who keeps his ancient promises. Burns says, we find preceding every revival a spiritual desert. He says, the tide is out, the wave of spiritual progress recedes, but even in receding, it is gathering in power and volume to return and to rush further in. When the night is at its darkest, the dawn is on its way. It's time to awaken faith. It's time to trust that God is not done with our nation. That God's promises have not expired. He's not given up on them. He gives them to us to run within our generation. And he keeps his promise. He turns Essex and Sittnas into Rehoboth. Whatever opposition, whatever challenge you are feeling right now, and the church is facing plenty of opposition, God is the God who can turn those things into room for his people to flourish. And that is a good point, so I'm going to say amen to it. Amen. (laughs) So what's our responsibility How do we deal with those promises? What do we do with them as the church that is longing for and waiting for a fresh new move of God? Well, I think it's not just enough to remind ourselves of the promises of God. We've got to turn it into action. And I think the second thing I want to focus on is not just the ancient promises, but ancient practices, things that the church has done for many, many, many years as a response to the promises of God. See, in Genesis 26, Isaac and his servants, they don't just, don't just go, oh, okay, God keeps his promises, we'll just sit back and wait. Like, they actually have to get their hands dirty. They dig up these wells. I have never dug up a clogged well. I don't know, maybe you have. Um, this strikes me as the kind of church more than mine where people might have done that. Um, I don't know. Uh, but, like, I imagine it's hard work. I imagine it is dirty and it is hard and there is a lot of labor involved in getting down to that water that is clogged up, that is blocked from you. And I think that's a kind of an interesting picture of what it looks like to be the church longing for the promises of God. We don't just kick back. There's hard work for us to do. There are ancient practices to get our hands dirty with if we're to experience something of God's power. James Burns argues that every great move of God is preceded by God awakening his church and calling them back to ancient practices. And he says the order always goes something like this. It starts with dissatisfaction. It's where individuals and churches look at the nation around them and say, I am not satisfied by the brokenness I see here, the lostness that I see on people who I know and I love. But if that dissatisfaction is to be healthy, we can't just let that be our dominant feeling. That will just eat us up inside. We have to channel that into helpful ways. So he says the way to channel your dissatisfaction is then into commitment. To saying, I will not be part of the problem, I want to be part of the solution. That means that anything in me that is unholy and is wrong and does not reflect God has to go. Commitment. Then it needs to be channeled into prayer. Saying, God, I am not satisfied, would you do something about the state of our nation? We need to be people who cry out to God and we need to worship him with everything we've got. We need to give all that we are to him. And when we do that, Burns says, the waters are far withdrawn and heaped up, foaming behind the barricade, but the times are ripe. The soul of humankind cries out for God. A spirit of intense expectation is present. Once more, the long bitter night has ended. The dawn is at hand. I don't know about you, but I am not satisfied by what I see in our society around us. The brokenness, the pain, the lostness. with people that I love But if I just live the rest of my life with that dissatisfaction and don't do anything with it, it's going to destroy me. Instead, I need to channel that into commitment, saying I will not be part of the problem. I will not live the same broken ways, trusting in systems that can never refresh us. I want to be part of the solution. And so I'm going to cry out to God. You know, I am making Habakkuk 3 my prayer. We have heard your great deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. I'm not happy with revival being things of the past. I want to see it in the present. I want to see the promises of God come. And so I'm going to give myself in worship and prayer and the ancient practices of fasting and scripture reading and longing for more of his power and his presence. The tide has been out for too long. So my challenge is this. If you feel something of the discomfort that I feel, will you channel that into ancient practices? Of again, making space in your life to let scripture guide you and be the foundation for everything you do of praying with every part of your being, every ounce of strength you have, of giving yourself to fasting as a way of saying, God, I give you every part of me. Longing and believing that he could do incredible things. Will you make a priority of those things? Now, maybe you hear that and you're thinking, honestly, no. (laughs) Like, no, I thought you were invited here to say something happy and cheerful, not just to give us more things to put on a to-do list. That's not why we got you down here today. If that's the case, sorry, blame him. But like... I feel that burden sometimes. I can feel like prayer and scripture reading just feel like, oh, it's another thing I've got to do and it feels hard, and I'm not sure I'm up to that, which is maybe a hint that I'm going about it the wrong way. Like, I've always found things like prayer really, really difficult my entire life. But actually, when done right, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of this is the right thing to do, to connect with my God and to to deal with my soul in a healthy way, it should be the most life-giving thing you could imagine. In Jeremiah 6, God speaks to his people and he says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Done correctly, the ancient practices of crying out to God with every part of our beings should be rest for our souls like wells of living water. I don't have time to tell you my story, but honestly, 2018 was probably one of the hardest years of my life and the life of our family due to all sorts of challenges and uh, particularly health complications. It was a really difficult year. And yet also, honestly, and this is not just the hyperbole or things that preachers say, it was probably the most spiritual, vibrant year of my life. And it's weird how those things go together. Incredible opposition, incredible challenge, but also a deep connection with God. And two things, I think, changed for me. One was a realization that I don't think we're going to get through this and be of any use to our church or each other as a family unless we really draw on the strength that God has available for us. And I've known that I've always found prayer really, really hard. And yet I hear people talk about prayer as if it is the most strengthening, life-giving thing ever. And I'm like, I don't know that. And I need to know that. So I gave myself to prayer in 2018. I found I started to hear God's voice way more clearly. I stopped just praying the prayers that I thought he might answer, and I started praying everything that was on my heart and let God deal with which ones he was going to answer or not. That's not my decision. And I found that my prayer life came alive, that scripture started speaking to me in unexpected ways, that I had faith for incredible things that I didn't have before, that I had opportunities to talk to people about my faith that I didn't before. I opened myself up to the power of God through the ancient practices. The second thing that happened, and I don't have time to tell you about this because I've whitted on too long already, but like I had an encounter with God last summer that just completely wrecked me. It was the oddest thing, totally not expected at all. I was at this event, it was like a couple of days and it was not a great event uh, and we ran it. (laughs) So that made it even worse. But like the end of the event, suddenly just the Holy Spirit hit me in an unexpected way and I felt like God said, you need to have faith. Don't quench my activity through your lack of faith. You need to have faith and you need to cry out for revival. And you need to preach on this in your church. No matter how cynical people feel, you need to go for it. You need to long for a fresh new move of the Spirit. And so I talked to others on the team who were feeling similarly. And so we were like, we don't know what to do with this dissatisfaction. None of us are particularly good at prayer, but we don't have to do it alone. We can learn together. And so from last summer, we just started to fast and pray together and talk about what we were learning. And and it was amazing. It really was. It continues to be great. So if you find the spiritual practices of prayer and worship and scripture reading hard, you don't have to do it alone. God doesn't say just go into a room and like white knuckle it, just do it by yourself. No, we are in community together. Worship together. I was thinking, actually just before the the first service, I was praying and and I really felt like a sense, and I think this is from God, um, I I feel like your worship night tonight is going to be really significant. I don't know what they're like generally. I mean, Grace says they're great. I I believe her. I mean, they might be awful for all I know, but I feel like tonight is not going to be awful. I feel like it's an opportunity to draw a line in the sand and say, I want to give myself wholly to you. And who knows what God will do when you do that. Give yourself to the ancient practices. But the reason we do this is not actually because God just wants us to do the hard work. It's because the ancient practices are the ways of taking our faith in his promises and connecting them to the power that has the ability to bring those promises to fruition. The ancient practices are the way we connect with the ancient power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where I want to land this morning. Right through scripture, wells and water and streams are so often a picture of the power of God and the Holy Spirit. We see this again and again in the Old Testament, in the prophets. When you get to the New Testament, John chapter four, there's this beautiful story. You probably know it. Where Jesus is standing at a well and there's this lady there talking to him and they have a conversation. And Jesus said, look, if you knew who I was. You wouldn't be getting water from this well. You'd be asking me for water because the water I can give you is better than this. It bubbles up to eternal life. And the lady says, well, how are you going to get the water? And it sounds like she's thinking practically, like, how? You, like, you don't have a bucket? Like, what are you going to do? And then she asked this second question, are you greater than our father Jacob? Why that question? Well, the reason is because this well was dug by Jacob and given to his son Joseph. That's the well they're standing at. But whose father was Jacob? Isaac, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is standing here at this well, and this well, I think, represents every well that precedes it. There's this lineage of wells from Abraham who got the promises of God in their dry land, God provided for him. The wells got clogged up, Isaac reopened them. Then Isaac's son Jacob dug a new well, passed it on to Joseph, and here they are, Jesus and this woman, and she says, are you better than Jacob? And he's like, yes, I'm better than all of them. Because every one of these wells was a temporary thing pointing to me, and I am the wellspring of life. And if you come to me, I will give you water that none of them ever could, but they all pointed to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph would have longed to taste the water that I have to give you. Fast forward three chapters. John 7. Jesus is standing there in the temple at this feast, and what does he say? That anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Notice that. It's not even, it will just bubble up within you. It will flow from within you. God will fill us with life that spills out into the world around us. He says, by this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. All the ancient wells of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and every other well that has ever been dug points to the one true wellspring of life, Jesus Christ who can change our lives through his death and resurrection. And if you give your life to him, he will fill you with the Spirit, not just to satiate you, but to pour out into the world around us. And the reason the ancient practices are so powerful is not actually because God's looking down thinking, well, if they just did a bit more work, then maybe i play my end of the bargain. No, the reason they're powerful is because they're ways of getting deep down into the well and drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit. And releasing his activity in our lives. If we are to see spiritual renewal in our nation, it will not ultimately come through our hard work, but by the presence and power of the Spirit. And historians often say that every revival is preceded by prayer, and that is true. But if you hear that and think, well, what we need to do is just pray a lot and our hard work will bring revival, that's not the message. The reason that prayer is such a powerful preceding thing for revival is because prayer says, God, I give you every part of me. I need more of your spirit. It's the spirit who brings revival. So we need more of the presence of God. As individuals and as a church, as the church in this nation, we need more of the spirit and the power of God. Let me tell you a story about one of my favorite uh, kind of heroes of the faith, a thinker called Blaise Pascal. He was a brilliant philosopher in the 17th century, contemporary of Descartes. Uh, tragically, he died at the age of 39, but in his short life, he achieved incredible things. Like He made some amazing advances in the areas of probability and hydrodynamics, and he created some of the earliest mechanical calculators, none of which are the reason why I like him. I'm not like, oh, I just love a calculator. Like that's, that's, that's my wife, not me. But like, like <laughs> the reason I... Love this guy is because he was a follower of Jesus and one of the brightest minds that has ever lived. And he had an encounter with the Spirit that totally changed his life. In November 1654, he experienced something of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We don't know what happened, but we know it was a two-hour experience that totally changed him. And after that experience, he wrote down in his journal these words. The Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I've departed from him. They've forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and the one you sent Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Those words are just like an unstoppable torrent of praise. I have no idea what happened to that guy for two hours, but it changed him. He encountered the power of God such that one of the brightest and most eloquent people who has ever lived suddenly forgot how to write cogent sentences and use punctuation. I mean, that is garbled. But it's just this explosion of praise and wonder and worship because he has encountered the wellspring of life. He has experienced certitude and feeling and joy and peace and power and fire that he has never got anywhere else. He says this, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and learned. He's not anti-intellectual. He's one of the cleverest men that has ever lived, and yet he knew in that moment that he had touched on something that the philosophers could never have got him to. He's experienced the power of God that goes beyond rationality. It comes and it lives within him, and it bubbles up, and it overflows to eternal life. And Pascal took that bit of paper, and he folded it up, and he sewed it inside his jacket so he could keep it by his heart every day of his life. Reminding himself of the power of God and his wholehearted devotion to following him. My question is this Do you know God like that? Do you know God like that? Is God for you the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, even the God of Jesus, the God of the Bible, who did amazing things then? And now we think of as a historical reality. Or is he your God? Because in this moment, for Pascal, he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then he says, that God will be my God. God is not just a distant historical reality. You can know him in a way that's like sewing him into your heart and carrying him with you forever. You can know him because if you are a follower of Jesus, he promises to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And your experience may be totally different to Pascal's, may be totally different to mine, may be totally different to the person sitting next to you. Honestly, I don't care that much what your experience of God is like. I just care that you know him and that you know his power. Honestly, I know of nothing else that is going to turn around the fate of our nation than a people who are wholeheartedly devoted to him, committed to the ancient practices, blocking out the voices of cynicism and secularism and saying, I need more of your spirit. In my life, in my church, in my workplace, in my community. We need the power of God. And so if you know today, if you feel this dissatisfaction and you just think, I want more of him, then I'm going to invite you in a moment just to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you. In a second, I'm going to invite you to stand and the band can come back up and we're going to go back to worship, but I'm going to pray a simple prayer, come Holy Spirit. And as I do that, I think he will probably answer that prayer. (laughs) I don't know what that will look like, but I believe that he comes to anyone who is thirsty and fills them afresh. And so actually, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you have big questions about faith. Maybe you already had them, and I've just given you some more. (laughs) I'm sorry if that's the case. Actually, I'm not. I'm sticking around at the end. I would love to chat to you. If you are seeking and you have questions of faith, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk with you. But my challenge to you is this. If you're there thinking, I don't know if there's a God, when I pray, why not open yourself up to the possibility? And when I pray, come Holy Spirit, see if God actually reveals himself to you utter a prayer, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? I think that's a prayer he longs to answer. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, but know you need more of his power and presence in your life, then in a moment, I'm going to invite you just to confess that to him, to say, I am thirsty, to confess where your heart has become dry at times, to confess where cynicism has maybe got in and stopped you longing and hungering for the promises of God in our day. And then I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and we'll see what happens. So would you join me in standing? And you may want to hold out your hands. This is just a way of saying with our bodies that we are ready to receive from Him. And you may want to close your eyes to help you focus on God. And I'll give you just 20 seconds just to express to God whatever is in your heart. Maybe you need to confess if you feel like you've let cynicism make your heart dry. Maybe you need to say, I'm thirsty. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. We wait for you. Just drink in the streams of living water right now. you feel like your last season, your last year has been characterized by clogged up wells, by Essex and Sittners, by opposition and dispute? Will you trust God right now to bring you into a place of room? be wrong about this, but I just, I wonder, I feel like there's someone here today who has recently, maybe even just this week, they have felt cheated over something, and they've lost some money in the process, and you're feeling just beaten up, and you're feeling like, how could God allow that to happen? And I feel like God says, bring that situation to me. And I will show you how I can turn your opposition, your struggles into room. I can provide for you. I feel also there may be someone here who's got just real pain in their shoulder uh, and maybe down into the back. I think it's your right shoulder. And I feel like, I mean, I'd happily pray for you at the end if that would help. But I just think as we worship, why not try lifting your arm in worship to him? I feel like God wants to bring something of his healing power today. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we remind ourselves of your promises and we trust that you are not done with them. May we be faithful in running with your promises in our generation. We are not content with what we see in this land that we love. We are not content with the pain and the brokenness and the lostness around us. We long to see a great new awakening in our nation. And I pray that it will begin in us. I pray for this church. I pray for Poole and Bournemouth and the regions around may something powerful begin here and ripple through this nation. We long to see people give their lives to you in their thousands. We long to see countless people find the rest and life and wholeness and restoration that they can only find in you. So we ask, would you pour out your spirit on us and draw men and women to yourself? We choose to give ourselves to you in full devotion. And we ask, fire of God, would you fall on us now? May we know power from on high, comfort, joy, certitude, peace, and fire. Would we be a people who follow you wholeheartedly, take steps of faith, hear your voice, and see miracles as we dare to follow you? In Jesus' name, amen.